Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with boss battles. This is Season 1 and we are talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, released on the Nintendo Switch in 2020. My name is Tyler and I'm joined by my friend Nate. Let's get started. Post-production Tyler here. In Episodes 1 and 2, you are going to hear me sound a little more breathy than we'd really like, and so in Episodes 3 and beyond, you will hear me speaking out of a higher quality piece of sound equipment, which is what I am speaking into right now. We are pleased to say this podcast has been a work in progress, but if you want to get ahead of these background sounds, we invite you to rejoin the conversation at Episode 3. How did you, how in your lifetime did you get into RPGs? What was the first... Like what? What introduced uh, you to this genre? Ah, uh, that's a great question. Um, really, I had I had played a couple of them in the early era of like the Super Nintendo. I think I uh, probably the one I dug most into was a game called Illusion of Gaia, and oh, yes. but that's it's more action RPG, you know. But it does have those elements of leveling up and. You know, different characters with different abilities. So, you know, yeah. it kind of fits fits the bill. Um, but as far as, like, diving into Final Fantasy or, like, turn-based systems, um, really, I didn't play a lot of that in the Super Nintendo era. And um, it was kind of the, uh, I would say, the flashiness and the spectacle of the PlayStation that drew me in to uh, Final Fantasy VII. I remember being in a... I, I can't name the name of the game store because it probably doesn't exist anymore in the hmm. wake of GameStop. But um, it was Mall of America, Minneapolis, and uh, walking into a game store and, you know, the PlayStation was still relatively new. And so when you saw one out in the wild, it was like, oh, my God, you know, and uh, then they had like a demo for Final Fantasy seven. And I just remember like the the graphics, which weren't great but you know hey it's back then it didn't matter Mm -hmm. but like really the spectacle of like running around in that steampunk world and then the the battle like animations and just the the whole experience i was like absolutely floored that i was experiencing this in a just in a game store you know and so it was that must have been some point 1997 and so it was kind of my mission to uh for my birthday which was in october uh request a playstation and a uh, copy of final fantasy 7 so before that my big genres were you know like the fighting games mario sonic all that stuff the the big stuff that everybody knew about and and i think like with a lot of other people, Final Fantasy VII was the first kind of breakthrough where it got through to people mm-hmm. like me. Mm-hmm. So um, became a little bit more mainstream. Yeah, but uh, yeah, great. Yeah, in in my case, I was in elementary school, and it was like a science fair that where we had those little cardboard like displays and mm-hmm. one of my friends he had it doesn't matter what the, what the science experiment was or whatever or whatever the context of the fair is but he had brought his super nintendo and a game and like and a and a tv with him to like play during downtime in between presentations i don't remember what kind of format this was exactly anyways he was playing final fantasy 6 on it and i and i was like oh my goodness what is that and and i watched him play it and i thought wow this is this is really interesting this is 
this is this is me being maybe 10 or 11 years old and i thought holy smokes this is looks fun looks interesting the characters are vibrant the the monster uh pictures were very very cool and and then i ended up getting it for for my super nintendo and then that unlocked the whole uh all of my enthusiasm for rpgs and, and then all the other maybe classics you'd say for super nintendo I, I i had played uh for the most part um earthbound chrono trigger final fantasy 4 and all the others and i played um illusion of gaia 2 i was quite fond of that one as well yeah mm-hmm. anyways so and then of course i then i got a playstation and i played ff7 8 9 and all of those yeah and, and i think one thing that really eventually getting the game there's a couple experiences i had with it that really kind of solidified the value of these is that going into the game i was expecting you know the game kind of sets up there's eight reactors and you know you got to save the planet by turning off the reactors so in my zelda brain i picture there's eight dungeons and then once you beat the eight dungeons there's a big bad guy at the heart of the city and you'll go kill him and then everything's better, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, once you really dig into the game, you find out that's not the format or the case of the game at all. And so it was kind of breaking down my expectations of what could, games could be and the kind of experiences they could uh, have in them. Um, and, uh, it was funny because I got the PlayStation and I had, I did not know about memory cards back then. So I did not have a memory card. So I was repeatedly playing the first or second reactors, like when I got home from school and just like waiting until the day I could afford one. Once I finally figured out what that save point needs from me. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I finally, one night I made it all the way to Aerith's house where like, you know, you, you meet her mom and you go to Wall Market or whatever. And, uh, that was finally the point where I was just like, mom, can, can <laughs> we go to the store? I need this, you know, I'll do whatever it takes, please just, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and it's really that kind of like, um, the way you're drag you're pulled in for like what's happening next where, you know, in those old games with the collect the eight things or whatever, you had that kind of breaking point where it's like, okay, I did, I did the thing. I'm going to take a break, you know, but there was a momentum about, uh, role-playing games that seven introduced me to and others that, you know, you, you would just play all night and uh have that engrossing experience so right yeah i I also didn't have a memory card when we first got a a a playstation and 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 i and i remember playing the few you know the first few hours of it over and over and 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 i would even i remember uh i'd i'd pause my game and turn off the tv and like hide that the power button was still on from my parents and Mm. we'd go to church or whatever it was we were up to uh and and hoping that you know later in the day could come back and my progress would remain and and that's that's how a little little scrub got by you know before we you know earned our enough money for for those memory cards that was pretty funny yeah, but yeah. it's it, like I feel like when we talk about stuff, we always find out we had a similar experience, and you know, like, and the the start of it is the uh, cipher action. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned have. that, Nate. My yeah. next question was like, how do we know each other? Okay, what's what's uh, this all about? The you and I. Well, you know, it's um, 
Uh, I worked at a uh, photography studio uh, mm-hmm. in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and through a network of people working there, I met your um, your sister's boyfriend. I'm not sure if that status has changed or updated at oh, any yeah. point since yeah. I moved. They are. Okay. Yeah, they're still together. They're still they're still boyfriend and okay. girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I met Bryce, and uh, then I met your sister, and then I met you, and um, really, you know. Um, I, I'm on this journey across the country, uh, being married to a military member here. So I go where she goes, and it, that's great. But uh, it leaves you with a lot of your friends kind of being uh, temporary or transient, as mm. just as you are transient as well. So, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of those friends back home uh, being all, all over the place, you know, and the friends you make here or whatever it's tough to keep those connections. And so I think, you know, you and I have had periods where we don't talk for quite a bit, but um, just cause life gets in the way. But uh, I, especially in uh, pandemic world, I was kind of like craving after a bit of that. I was like, I really need to reach out to people who like, I feel I, I could have a community with, you mm-hmm. know, because um, it, that's, that's the thing that's hardest to find here uh, when you're, kind of moving from place to place and not having roots so to speak so um yeah we've we've had this connection over the years of just uh like i said we have that kind of similar outlook and experience and things um and it's always fun to talk about our our perspectives on things i think uh you're probably a little more well-read than I am, and uh, that always like challenges my perspective. And you having like material to reference or or things to go back to for inspiration when it comes to like books and uh, literature and things, and, and it makes sense because you know your uh, <laughs> career in uh, well, I forget if you want to elaborate on that, but what well, your sure. uh, history and writing was. But. Yeah, I well, yeah, I used to work for a magazine for a long time as an editor for like a local arts and culture bi-weekly thing. You know, if you've got your arts and culture, economic development, music, theater, you know, local happenings sort of publication and wherever wherever mm-hmm. you and, and, and listeners live, then uh, yeah, I worked for, for a thing like that. And so... Um, so I've gotten pretty good with the written word, uh, but now I work in travel, and so I, I I do different stuff now, and I I take a guided I organize guided uh, I t- group itineraries, and we go all over the world, and and I don't do quite so much writing now, but I still have that um I still have that enthusiasm uh, for for things like that. But um but I want but I want to uh, take this. Uh, back a couple steps and come back to the cypher figurine <laughs> nate oh so, sure so uh so when you when you said a couple minutes ago like yeah we both had like the cypher figurine um the 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 cypher uh uh action figure was a i assume a limited edition you know like figure that that you could get that was related to final fantasy 8 of course a cypher is a character from final fantasy 8 cypher almacy and and you have one and i have one and then while we were i think we were at the joint which is a bar in eau claire and we were discussing gaming and and our interests and things like that and it came up that one of us had the cypher and and then the other and then our the the other one said hey i have the cypher too and that would that was kind of like a watershed moment between us where we thought oh this human being is kind of like me yeah in a a special ways 
and we were we kept tripping over those scenarios where it's mm-hmm. like wait wait i did that too you know um and uh it, it was it was just kind of funny because it's like i really i had a hard time finding people to relate to some of my specificities in life mm-hmm. um and then you know running into somebody that and again you weren't necessarily part of my close social circle that i was forced into we kind of happened upon each other and just started talking and it was like you know i was like dang all right this <laughs> this guy gets it you know and uh so uh, that we've had a lot more of those experience whether it comes to like what games we've played or what our interests are or you know um reactions to certain things i remember you talking about a recent final fantasy on on the back of the cypher thing a uh, a final fantasy 8 playthrough where i kind of told you perspective on things that i enjoyed about it and you were telling me things that were you were kind of let down by at the time and we'd kind of like come to this understanding of like there was a little bit more value you took away from what i said and there was some critiques that i hadn't thought of before or just hadn't encountered about the game and i was like this is really interesting conversation and i I remember thinking your partner at the time looking incredibly bored because we'd probably taken about (laughs) an hour in that conversation so yes that's i think that's just part of getting to know me and being romantically involved with uh a person like myself which which is kind of how i'm gonna I put myself forward going forward. You know, I, I'm going to be like this. And if you don't like that, well, that's fine. We don't need to waste our time. But if you do, I think that's great too. And so, yes. uh, I'm, I don't know, like we, we're in our thirties. We're older. Well, we're I'm as, I guess as old as a 30 something year old gamer can be, we're older. And, uh, and and we've got to know each other, you know, over the over the years, like you mentioned. And then we had these discussions about Final Fantasy VIII, and then since we've been reconnecting in recent months, we've been having uh, online conversations about Xeno Gears, um, yes. a game that's near and dear to my heart, and I and I can imagine the same is 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 true for you, Nate. Um, I I played it uh, back when it back when it came out in in 1998, and it's and it completely blew my mind. Um, the story is is so complex and the characters are so interesting and and the enemies are very or the well, not the enemies let's say the antagonists are are fascinating and they kind of grapple with one another in a way where where maybe a more traditional rpg has like a united front of foes these guys have their own scenarios and and schemes and they undo one another and they'll they'll and destroy one another and and uh never mind uh enormous robots giant robots we love giant robot combat and and that was all pretty great too anyways so i had an existing enthusiasm about it nate you've played xeno saga and then you played uh, xeno gears recently and we were kind of digesting that game in recent months and now we are kind of upping the ante by having these more structured conversations about an all new game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and to dial back a little bit, um, I think it was back in the, one of those joint conversations back like 2016, 2017 that I asked you because I had never played Xeno Gears up until this recent playthrough I did this year. 
Um, I asked you what your thoughts on it were because we were going through various games we played and everything. And I, I want to say your quote of it was something along <laughs> the lines of the greatest game that was never made. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I see what you mean by that because it part of it was made. <laughs> but <laughs> as, as a complete game, it was not uh, entirely finished. And uh, But it was a really fun experience to go through that. I think the um, the reason I didn't get into that game originally was that was an age range for me where I did not have disposable income. So the library was very, very curated as far as the, the PlayStation 1 goes. Um, but as we moved into Xenosaga, the PlayStation 2 era, that's when I started having the ability to go out and earn some income and make some of my own choices of what games I have. And, um, that, uh, I I don't know, that was also an era where I was kind of really deep down the anime rabbit hole. Um, so Xenosaga kind of jived well with that as well. So I skipped Xenogears, played all of Xenosaga 1 about half of Xenosaga 2 and I can't honestly say that I don't remember I, I don't remember 90% of it as like the content of the game I remember how I felt playing the game and mm. uh that that's probably going to be the most useful thing moving forward that we can take from Saga but having just recently played Xeno Gears I'm going to kind of work off of some of those comparisons to as we move into Xenoblade um I'm I'm having a good time with Xenoblade right now and so I have a lot of interesting things to say about it. And I also have like uh, the feelings about um, this is a recent HD re-release. So I don't know what is kind of fixed up or touched up in comparison to the original, you know, but um, I, I would like to kind of give it this perspective of putting myself in a headspace of 10 years ago. How would this game have like, uh, made me feel as far as how it's working and its systems and story and everything and compare that to today. I think that's kind of an interesting thing to kind of look into is how far have we come in 10 years? And again, 10 years after say Xeno gears came out um, or maybe more like 12, how far have we come since then having just played Xeno gears? So that's, that's a pretty interesting uh, kind of three-step process for me to take a look at and uh, dissect and um yeah yeah that seemed pretty natural too so we we both played as you know gears um don't necessarily have the appetite to uh scrutinize xeno saga uh at this at this time and so it would follow that we might we might look into xeno uh xeno blade uh xeno blade uh chronicles definitive edition i think i guess we're both playing it on the switch um yes originally released in 2010 on the wii released in recent years i don't know the proper year on me for the switch definitive edition release um uh released by monolith soft uh which who did the xenosaga trilogy and i and um baton kados and other and other rpgs um most of which i have not played i guess this might be my mm-hmm. my first monolith soft game personally so let's talk about the title screen. What is it trying to tell us? So we've got, when we turn it on and we reach the start new game, load game, there's mm-hmm. there's a funny looking red sword dug into a green field of grass. 
waving softly in the wind and and a beautiful blue sky it's very vibrant these colors are um and as someone who's played xenogears uh with the, the that title screen it's got the hard red x and the xenogears yeah mm-hmm. and very very metal i don't know if i mean like heavy metal but like it's it's um technological in its stylishness yes but xenoblade is presenting something very natural very open world um this came out before breath of the wild i think and so i, I, I was gonna i was gonna mention that yeah oh, did you sure uh well, why yeah go ahead if you if you have a comment on it, it. The, that just that site i i don't know if it's a like video game thing or if it does it in all medium but when i see a big open grassy field that lends me to think uh exploration openness you know because i i just think back to whether it was the super nintendo rpgs or you know getting more into like final fantasy 10 you know there's a lot of areas where when you see a big open grassy field you know i'm gonna be able to run around here and do some fun stuff and take on some (laughs) extra activities you know that's just kind of a staple so you know, I don't know if a moviegoer, if they see that kind of Im- imagery, if they think the same thing or if it elicits different feelings. But for a video game to start with that, um, you know, I knew a, I knew some stuff about this game leading up to the fact that it's been out for years. And I've heard other people talk about it, but immediately that hits me as like this game is going to offer me freedom, the ability to kind of get out there and explore a little bit. And um set against the image of the sword you know that's kind of the uh, seems like the the name of the title and that uh i guess you could kind of infer that it's the sword but like you said it looks pretty goofy um but with the title there i think that that's uh, it's just making a clear statement like this thing is going to be the focal point or like the uh uh center of events of this game Mm -hmm. so um yeah I, i uh that that imagery i don't know if takahashi the director of the xeno games through gears saga and blade i don't know if he works with a single art director or you know works with the same people throughout all the years like um for example hideo kojima um for metal gear all the way to recently he made death stranding the uh the art for those games is done by uh yoji shinkawa and uh he uh he has a very signature style. So when I look at that sword in Xenoblade, I am brought back to several of the, um, I don't know if you'd call them the Gazel Ministry or just like the founders. The 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 first generation technology in Xenogears is highly advanced. And then the generations after have kind of adapted this more like steampunk vibe to them. Right. So um, Xenoblade gave me this uh this feeling of a highly advanced almost like um a progenitor race feeling to it because um it rem- not because of what i knew about xenoblade as a game but what i knew about the art direction of takahashi's games if he's weaving kind of a similar thread through his stories as i've experienced through gears saga and now blade I'm going to imagine that this sword is ancient and not like something made by the the world. This universe is Tony Stark, for example. I, sure. I, that's what I was first drawn to uh, feelings wise. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, quite a stark contrast from the 
beautiful blue sky and, and green grass there. It's kind of like a splinter in the setting. It's it's this shock of red, and it doesn't look like a sword very much. It's kind of, I hesitate to say plastic, like plasticine, but it has like a like a futuristic plasticineness to it, like as if it were, you know how like Apple has like a soft white sheen on everything it has in in that sort of texture but but in red and and it's it's got it's very its edges are very round and it has a like a holographic console in its hilt area and it and it's it's and it's not shaped like a let's say like a proper like i don't know I don't know what you call a proper sword, like a like a normal knight sword. It's 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 cleaver like. It's it's kind of got the silhouette of like the Buster sword, but scaled down and has these little spires that come out and all in red. And we would later yeah. find out that a beam of energy comes out like between them, and then there's like a hologram in the hand in the handle area, above the handle area, and then there's a uh, of course a red grip. It's a funny looking tool well i was gonna say um you mentioned the world word tool there and i don't know what your experience is with the kingdom hearts games at all have you played those i played most of the first one i remember very little in the way of lore okay there there's multiple times where i get a very um kingdom hearts inspired uh, feeling from these games and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more once we kind of dissect oh, okay. other things but um the idea of kind of maybe when we went through the 90s era of everybody's got big swords and um i think in the 2000s there was a transition to um people using tools as weapons so it's like yeah you can hit monsters with whatever you're carrying but it has to be about something more and so with kingdom hearts you have the key blade it's like yeah you hit monsters with it but its real function is to open and close these doorways to different worlds and so that's that's kind of um like you said it, it looks like more than a sword and so yeah. uh, i i get the feeling that this thing is not just the best way to murder people it has a, a bigger significance for the overall plot that's a fascinating take nate what other rpgs have swords with auxiliary <laughs> functions I has, uh, I has to, what else could there be i'm trying to rack my brain here Ah uh, well, that that was a. Uh, it just came up off the spot when you mentioned the word uh -huh. tool because uh, I don't have any notes on other games, but maybe we could look that up and uh, put a little addendum in here or something sure. uh, if we feel like it. I'm trying to rack my brain for what other RPGs I played in the 2000s, but it, it just feels like um, you know as things move forward, we we got away from the giant swords. Like the bigger the sword is, the better. Uh, formula in the rpg scene mm -hmm. so yeah mm -hmm. but anyway so yeah go ahead chapter one. Oh sure well we so we start chapter one with a cutscene, and mm -hmm. it is a legend it is a it is an origin story for the world Right before we sat down here, I rewatched most of it. I I got the whole first scene and I watched part of the of the second scene. And so I'll sure. just go through what I see here. So um it starts with a with a shot of a primordial ocean and then a narrator 
with what I believe is an Australian accent, uh, mm -hmm. explains to us uh, the nature of the world, where at first there was nothing but but this ocean, and then there were two titans, uh, Bionis and Mechanis, um, just eternally entangled in a in a fight between one another, and we get these close-up shots of these enormous. Um, they they look like enormous robots, although one looks a little more organic than the other, and they mm -hmm. have these enormous weapons, and they're and they're like knee deep in this primordial ocean, or something like that, and they're swinging these mighty weapons. One of them is a, I'll say a more conventional blade made out of stone or metal, and the other one has a large energy sword. Yes. And we get a close up of what I believe is Bionis's um, energy sword shearing off a shoulder pad or something like that from Mechanis, and and so so maybe things are escalating now that we're watching the scene here, and and then um, more parts are coming off of each, and then they stop, and it's, it seems like time sort of stops there, and then the narrator says that these titans are now lifeless, and they're and in the positions they're in, in their lifelessness is they both have their weapons striking one another. Yeah. Making contact with one another. They're frozen in that position. And mm -hmm. then we fast forward through time and we're in a war zone. Do you have any notes on? This uh, I, I think the, the biggest note of a difference between, and again, I'm going to bring up the Xeno legacy here sure. as we work through things. Cause please, that's please do. interesting. That's interesting to me. Um, I think the biggest difference here is this is, um, very clear exposition from the start. Um, no vague imagery of things we don't understand. So if you think to the ship scene of Gears, um, there's a lot of babble, you know, <laughs> yes. that you can only make sense of at the end of the game. Tower right? of Babel. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, that's <laughs> funny. That's funny that you say that because it becomes literally a Tower of Babel, the very thing you were looking at at the beginning of the game. Um, and... Uh, so I think that's uh, and to me I find that to be a very anime convention of just dropping someone into a world in the midst of everybody having uh, deep knowledge of things and not really having a, uh, a like a person as the player's avatar to kind of pick up on some of this stuff they just start talking they just start doing stuff as if you have lived there for a hundred years you know um the same same thing with xenosaga starts out with people unearthing a giant golden uh key card <laughs> out of the out of the sea you know it's more than that i'm being a little yeah. reductive but um you know and uh this game with the exposition um it's funny because I can clearly tell what's happening in this one just by looking at it to where maybe I didn't need the exposition this time. And it could have been left a little bit more mysterious, but they said, no, we're going to make sure you know what's going on. So oh. mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of simultaneously appreciate it, but I also feel like, hey, guys, uh, you know, you didn't do this last time. So I, I, you can't change the past, but it's just it's kind of a funny uh juxtaposition for me that i kind of visually just understood what was going on with this one um 
And then I'm not sure if the pan out to where you see the giant robots and then it zooms into like the individual locations on the robots happens in that scene or later. It might happen after the battle uh, that we see shortly here. Um, but I remember when I was when I heard about this game ten or so years ago. Remember hearing the kind of uh, people talking about like, oh, you're fighting on top. The whole world is on top of a giant robot, you know, or, or giant, you know, god being or something. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, there's no way that they can execute that satisfyingly because video games have limitations. And every time they try and do something grand like that, it kind of falls flat, you know. And I was actually surprised when I saw that pan out of like, wow they actually did a really good job of like this looks like a place where people live but it also is yeah it totally is a part of this thing's body and i see the connection there you know so mm. i was, that I was, was getting a sense of that too yeah that was pretty satisfying um as far as uh what you mentioned with the one of them is like a bio, more of a biological um titan and the other one is mechanical I think we can kind of dial back to Xenogears with uh, Deus being a hybrid combination of technology and organic matter, you know? So mm -hmm. not only were they developing nanomachines and uh, different uh, technological parts and recovering things uh, as part of their plans, but they were also uh, experimenting on biological beings that would become parts for god so to speak so i can see where um you know we're kind of touching on some of those same themes again of uh, the relationship of uh organic to uh non-organic and uh them being at war with each other oh yeah yeah we're almost certainly going to be grappling with that uh and and those mechanisms and organisms at war with each other is what we see uh in the very next shot uh the 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 narrator in the primordial ocean primordial ocean uh takes us to this new time perhaps more recent in which we're in a battlefield and there are humans although they go by a different name for their race i'm forgetting what it is now um oms h-o-m-s that's right yeah oms sounds like mm. oh like isn't like a unit of isn't there well a, i think energy i think they are OMS? trying to i think they are trying to say the h but the accents sometimes chop it off Oms. you know so sure yeah. so i think they are saying it but we are uh midwestern accent brains probably are hearing it less than we would hope to soldiers uh racing one way racing the other they've got wep they've got rifles they've got shields with these large um, knives at the like you know blades at the end of them, and mm -hmm. they're fighting these mechons, which appear to be a race of mechanical monsters, and they're they're kind of insect-like, but they have these, but some of them have these gilded edges to them where they like gleam gold, and so and so they they have they have a, a primordialness look to them, but they also have a a an advanced. Uh, highly technologically evolved look to them as well and they're fighting and their people are getting blown up and machines are getting destroyed and we cut to our first character uh, a soldier named Dunban Dunban mm -hmm. 
Dunban, a soldier, and he's holding that red sword, and he's, he ducks behind a a an obstacle from from all the bullets and such, and he's talking with a with another man named Dixon. And Dick and first of all, we'll talk about Dunban. He's he's a young man. He's got long, dark hair. He's handsome, clean shaven, and he's got the red sword. Yeah, he's a young man, but he's also when you when you think of uh, the Japanese market, they like their protagonists really young. So he, uh, from their perspective, would probably come off more as the grizzled veteran, or uh, you know, he's got a little bit of facial hair, he's got long hair, he's got some more harsh features to him. Mm-hmm. So I think for the Japanese player, they're gonna think this guy has seen some shit. You know, he's seen. Uh, more than his share of battles whereas the main protagonist you know he's got a very uh traditional jrpg look to him where you know you can kind of uh see yourself in his shoes at least for the target audience of that game you know i'm 35 at this point so Uh i might be more i might identify with more of a dunban myself but uh you know yeah when I, i when i look at dixon i do not see myself as a as a mustache, a blonde mustachioed uh, headband wearing biker boy, um, but he seems like a nice enough guy. Um, yeah, he could be a friend of Dunben's, a mentor. Um, it's hard to tell, although although we are certain there's a, a almost certain there's like a generational difference uh, yes. in their ages between them, and 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 his language that he's using with a. Uh, to Dunban is kind of like looking after him. He tells him, your body can't take any more of the Monado. And yep. Dunban says, I'm still in control. Mm-hmm. And there's also, a, <laughs> there's a third character too, and I forget his name, but he's the sad face Gomer Pyle motherfucker. And he, and he's, I don't know. He's, he's got beady little eyes. So, you know, <laughs> he's got something going on inside that head of his. <laughs> He's got beady eyes. He's uh, has bags under his eyes. He is. Uh, he looks like a shell shocked, war weary soldier that just wants to get the heck out of this hot zone. And I can hardly blame him because looks like people are dying all over the place. Um, but <laughs> Dunban's like <laughs> sad face. Boy says, "Hey, no, we should we should get out of here." And Dunban like flashes a look at him and says. Or we can stay here and kill them all, or something. That yeah. that's, something that's like the last thing this guy wants to hear is, or or we can be heroes and kill everything. Yeah, and it's like that the outlook of maybe after you've fought enough battles and you've been through this so many times, you lose that like uh, that thing, that feeling of like, oh, if I just get through this one, it'll make everything better. And so maybe Dixon is more the guy that it's like, I just want to go out in a blaze of glory and, you know, do what I can for the next generation instead of being self uh, in the mindset of Mm self-preservation. He is more in the mindset of like, I'm part of this machine and I just got to do my part, you know, so. Right. And they... They engage some Mekons, and we get our first taste of battle. It's a little simplistic at this point. Um, we're auto-attacking, mm-hmm. and I don't know if we're playing with any abilities just yet, but we're dealing damage to these Mekons, and uh, Dixon's with us, and I think our third our third man is there too, and we're wielding the Monado. Oh, hold on here. Hold on here. I have to take a step back. My goodness. 
that quote, your body can't take any more of the Monado and I'm still in control coming from back from Dunban. Mm-hmm. What we're learning is that there's a sort of maybe a spiritual or physical toll that um, wielding the Monado takes. Yes. But I don't know much about the extent of what that means just yet, but uh, I'm certain that we'll, we'll get farther into it as we, as the story plays out. And, and that's an element to, um, you know, I think again, to kind of look at the, the source culture or, you know, exposure the writers have had to different stories or whatever. I think that's a, a, a positive element that writers have started using in Japan in the last 10 to 15 years is when you have something that has power, you have to have a drawback to it or a limitation or, um, you know, some sort of cost because otherwise you get yourself into what I call the Goku problem of you create this character that has overwhelming power and then for the story to be interesting, you need to constantly think of ways to for that power to be taken away. So like, oh, he's traveling on a ship or he's in a, a vat of healing ointments, you know, or mm-hmm. he has a heart condition or whatever it is. It's like you constantly need to take that person out of the story because they would just fix everything, you know. So right. I think that's a very positive element to create this uh, dichotomy of the Monado has a cost to it, it has a toll. So you're going to, maybe if Dunban doesn't learn it, we, the player, are going to have to learn balance with this item and not to just use it to save the world immediately. Mm-hmm. Right, although that is what Dunban is very enthusiastic about. And I think the the way in which the scene completes is we... we get a few battles in here and then we're confronted with a more uh, uh, a stronger mechon and Dunbin overexerts himself mm-hmm. and he gets injured the the extent of the injury is not very obvious in this scene but I think he's got to be dragged away by Dixon and the third guy and mm-hmm. and I'm forgetting precisely how that scene ends but the taste in my mouth was that uh, our hero is has has been injured unclear whether that was from the monado or from the forces you know uh the the mechons and and that's kind of how how the intro ends yeah Uh, and a a couple notes i have when looking at this scene is like the mechon for example their design um they at first they kind of fulfill that menacing um you know threat that you don't you don't care about watching a dozen of them be slaughtered in your first tutorial battle but as i look more at them their their design they have this like kind of i would say like victorian clockwork design to them oh, in yes. a way yeah to where um it comes off as more uh of an intelligence behind them you know so if we were to say like uh I just got done rewatching the whole Matrix trilogy, right? Um, in that, in the physical world, the machines do themselves no favors by creating the most terrible-looking uh, outer shells for themselves of all time. They they look horrifying and menacing and uh, like straight out of your nightmares, right? Right. But when I look at the Mechon, they actually have like a, a beauty to them or something. Uh, 
like a quality that says that whoever's the, the whoever's the brain behind their operation you know they understand something about um i don't know i don't know how to say it but just you know a quality and a beauty to it. life yeah they, their, they have an elegance to them form. they don't look like like they're they don't look like they're exhausting diesel fumes yeah or, yeah or you know chugging like in like a traditional motor or engine they look they look very put together and elegant so knowing nothing about this game i'm kind of interested to see um are we going to see that explored more where there's going to be a little bit of heart and personality behind the other side of the fight Nate and I's first conversation was more than two hours in length, and so we're splitting up that conversation into two separate episodes. Of course, this was introductions, the title screen, and the opening uh, scenes, and then uh, the next episode will be the bulk of chapter one. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we just made a new email address, hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com. That's one zero 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 potions, uh, and uh, you can connect with us on that. Um, other social media will be forthcoming. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.